0: who came out in the cold. Uh, I'm going to give you a reward. Your reward is we get to start with a game today because you got out of the house and you came here. We'll start with the game. It's the what's better game. Simple. I'm going to give you two things and you decide which is better. So the first one, a rainy day or a sunny day. Which is better? I heard every one of you. So the correct answer was rainy day. If you didn't get that right, you can leave now. No, you should stay now. We need you here to keep the body warm today. All right? Here's another one, second one. Um, eating pumpkin pie or getting punched in the eye, which is better? It's a tough one because pumpkin pie is really gross. So I know some of you are with me and you'd rather get punched in the eye. i give you a third one. This is the last one. Um, being humble or being right? Ooh that's a hard one, isn't it? And some of you, you're going, can't I have both? And I said that to someone this week and they said, oh, have you seen that Bluey episode also? And I said, some of you know what Bluey is, right? Raise your hand if you know Bluey. And so Bluey, parents and grandparents know Bluey. It's the biggest thing right now with kids. So I'm sitting in my office this week watching an episode of Bluey and laughing hysterically. There's an episode called Grannies. And these two kids, uh, Bluey's the, the taller one, and Bingo is the shorter one. They're sisters. They're dogs, yes, but they are they talk, and they're sisters, and they're dressed up as grandmothers. That's what they're trying to do. And they're going to be grannies. They're Rita and Janet, are their grandma names. That's not their real names. They're Bluey and Bingo. Um, but Bingo, the younger one, wants to be grannies who floss, not their teeth, but the dance. I was going to demonstrate it, but I looked in the mirror and tried, and I said, no. <laughs> no, we're not doing that. So you may know what I'm talking about. So Bluey says to Bingo, grandmas don't know how to dance, so we can't dance when we're playing grannies. So they go to mom, because they're in an argument about it, and mom says, I don't know, go ask your dad. I don't, have you ever done that at your house? I don't know, go ask your dad. Go to dad, he's plunging the toilet, and he goes, I don't know, call your Nana. And so they get on FaceTime, and they call Nana, who, you know, it's like a close-up of her eye, and then it's her feet, and so I'm dying. It's, it's so funny finally she gets in and she can see them and they can see her and they say, can you floss? And she says, every night I floss. And they go, no, 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 not that, that your teeth. Can you do the dance? And they, she doesn't know how to do the dance. And so Bluey goes, I told you, I was right. Grannies can't dance the floss. So we don't get to do the floss. And Bingo is hurt and upset and just walks off. I don't want to play with you anymore. And Bluey's upset. Like, why would not you want to play with me? And goes to mom and says, mom, and mom says, well, what do you want, Bluey? Do you want to be right? Or do you want to play with your sister? And That hits, doesn't it? That hits pretty hard. And I thought about that a lot this week. I think about the New Testament, a lot of the letters that are written from Paul to churches. And he'll start and he'll say, I thank God for you. Every time I think of you, I'm so pleased that you know the gospel and that Christ is changing your life. And you go, he's really happy and excited about the church. But then you'll get a little further in, he'll say, you guys are so rude (laughs) and there are disputes among you and you're fighting and it shouldn't be this way if you're in Christ. And I reflect on that. That's something that we know too, personally. We know that probably more than we should. That's the reason church hurt happens. And it's the way that church splits happen. And it's the reason why sometimes people outside the church will look in at the church and say, I'm just not that impressed with you guys. Like, like contrast these two statements. On one hand, you've got Acts two, you see how the church is forming and how they're behaving and what their attitudes are like, and it says, and they found favor among all the people, and the Lord is adding to their their number daily those who are being saved. And you contrast that to a phrase that you probably heard from Mahatma Gandhi. He said, "I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And that hits a little bit too. The reason I talk about this is because last week we started talking, about culture codes for Legacy Church. Five culture codes that I wanna hold up in front of you. Our staff knows these. They try to, not perfectly, but we try to embody these. Our worship team last year was introduced to these, and I watch them as they've adopted them, and they just hold up these culture codes and the way they carry themselves. And we don't know what 2024 brings. We have no clue whether good or bad, probably all of the above. We need some rules for relationships so that we might have Christ-honoring relationships within the church, with whomever we have influence in the world, that we would carry the character of Christ wherever we go and with everyone we spend time with. I showed you the the overview last week. Here's the five that we'll look at. Last week was pastoring over presenting, or pastoring is greater than presenting. Today is humility is greater than rightness. Next week is presence over preference. So for all those who decided to stay home in the warmth today, that should be awkward for them, right? Presence is greater than preference. Clarity equals kindness will be week four, and then the last week we'll talk about how to have grace without compromising your convictions. But today I want to talk to you about humility is greater than rightness, or being humble is more important than being right all of the time. That's what we'll look at today. Uh, And when I say that, I realize, I think you know this, but I'll just say it so there's no confusion. Being right doesn't automatically make you arrogant, right? Just because you have the right idea about something doesn't mean you're automatically Full of the sin of pride, we just know ourselves and we know how those things can travel together a lot. And the Bible does talk about how we're typically ruled by one or the other, either by humility or by pride. One has control over us. And the Bible is very clear about how God views humility and how God views pride and what we're called to as Christians. And there's a lot we could read today. I want you to look basically at one passage at, at Philippians chapter 2. So if you grab your Bible, find Philippians. Chapter two, it's where we'll sit today. And i tell you, this morning, I, I woke up and I had something on my mind. And most days, I wake up with this very same thought on my mind. And some days, it comes and passes pretty quickly. And then other days, I just dwell on it. and I think on it. And I'll go to work thinking about this thing. And, and I'll, I'll be talking with people and it's on my mind. Do you, you know what I'm always thinking about and I can't quit thinking about? Me all the time. And then you're the same, right? You can't quit thinking about me. you. You can't quit thinking about you. And I can't quit thinking about me. And we do this all the time. And and here in Philippians 2, we'll find that humility, the humble person, is the person who considers other people as more important than themselves. Look at Philippians 2, verse 1. It says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if you've ever been encouraged by knowing who Jesus is, If there is any consolation, if you've ever been comforted by his love, if there's any fellowship of the spirit, if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, if any affection or compassion has ever existed in your heart because of Christ, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also look out for the interests of others. This gives us a definition that humility is looking at other people and considering them as more important than ourselves, that their lives their needs, that the opportunity to have a relationship with them is more important than my wants and my needs and my desires and my opinions at any given moment. And, and, and whenever you look at a person, humility says, you above me. And when you look at the Bible in general, it says that humility is, is not focusing on yourself all of the time. That's the proud person. Here's what the Bible says about the proud. Proverbs twenty nine twenty three. man's pride will end up bringing him low but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Right? Jesus in Matthew 23 said this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That's a, that's a promise. That's not a contingent. That's if you're, you are uh, exalting yourself, guess what? It's gonna happen. You'll be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then you've probably heard James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Philippians 2 tells us if we constantly are thinking about ourselves and whenever we interact with another person, we're consumed with our ideas and our position and our privileges and our opinions and our desires and our wants. And if that's the way that we view life and that's the way that we view other people and we are always measuring other people, their worth, their value, who they are against, our own perspectives on life, verse three says that that is selfish and it says that that is conceited. It says, in in contrast, the humble person is the person who considers other people as more important than themselves, more important than their positions, more important than what you feel is right. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Verse four, look out for the interests of others. Like it can't be more clear. There's not a lot to say about that. It says, do not do this, do this. So he's given us a principle to follow, and then Paul gives us an example of that to follow so we would know exactly what it looks like. In case we're too thick-headed to understand, don't be selfish and conceited, but be humble considering other people more important than yourself. You don't know what that means? Let me show you. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Although he existed in the form of God, and we'll talk about all of these sentences in a moment, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. And it couldn't be more clear. It just says we have to empty ourselves in the way that Jesus emptied himself, right? But what does that look like and what does it mean? Well, it says he existed in the form of God. That word form, It talks about the essence of our core, who we really are on the inside. It's the outward expression of the truth about who we are. He existed in the form of God means that Jesus is God. He always was, always will be God. He is co-equal with God the Father. And that's the greater teaching of the New Testament. Here's some passages for you to look up this week. They're gonna hit the screen and you can write them down. John 1, you remember this? It says, in the beginning was the word. And the word here is Jesus. He's the revealed word of God. In the beginning was the word and he was with God and he was God and all things came into being through him. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, says, he's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. John 14.9, Jesus is talking with Philip, one of the disciples. And he says, whoever has seen me has seen the father above because Jesus is co-equal with God. He is God. That being so, I mean, consider logically, that means no one can be more right than Jesus. No one could be more pure than Jesus. No one could be more privileged than Jesus. No one would be more justified than Jesus to walk into a room and say, I'm here and I am God and I know everything and I see everything and I am so right and you are so wrong. So you should get down on your knees and bow and get your mind wrapped around that. He would be completely justified in doing so. That's what we see a lot of Christians do. Don't we? I see a lot of Christians walk into the room with that same attitude. I'm here. Do you know what I know? Do you know what I have studied? I know doctrine. Huh? I know how to handle moral and social issues in this world. I know what's right, and you're so wrong about that. We do it to people outside of the church and we do it to each other. I've met so you've met so many Christians who walk into a room like I'm here and I know what's up. And so you ought to bow before me, right? We like them until they disagree with us and we say, bow. But Jesus, who is God, did not do that. It says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that word grasped, grasped means held onto, selfishly clung to with a tight fist. He did not regard equality quality with God, a thing to be squeezed tightly. He didn't walk into a room thinking about himself and what was his and what, what, what he deserved and what was right and how people should bow before him. He walked into a room and he saw people. His concern was for them. That's the mind of Christ that Paul is calling us to have. It's the mind of Christ that says, I won't keep my privileges and my position and all of the power that I have for myself, no, I'll gladly lay, a, lay it aside to gather with a person and to begin to lift and to hold them up. It says he emptied himself. And there's been a lot of heresy taught about this, this phrase, he emptied himself. Some people would say that that means he emptied himself of his divinity, that he no longer was fully God. That's heresy. He was fully God and fully man. That's the greater, te- the greater teaching of the New Testament. Some people would say that he emptied himself of his powers, That's silly because you read the Gospels and you see that Jesus was constantly doing things that only God can do. He didn't empty himself of his powers. He used his powers to authenticate his message and his presence in people's lives. In fact, we read the Gospels and we see that he even had understanding that no human could understand. While he saw with physical eyes, he had understanding that only God could have of a person. He knew the hearts of men and women that he would encounter. He knew what was going on on the inside like only God can. So he didn't empty himself of his godness. He emptied himself of the privileges of being God. Does that make sense to you? He's still fully God when he's fully man, but he empties himself of the privileges of being glorified every time he walks in the room that people would fall before him when he walks in the room. He emptied himself of the privilege of knowing he's right, being right, and and demanding that everyone would fall before him. Now, a time would come after he's been crucified and he is resurrected and he's ascended. And you look at Revelation. You go to Revelation and John, who's the beloved disciple, by the way. Remember, he's called the beloved disciple. And John is sent to the island of Patmos. He's, He's sent there for being too good of a Christian, right? So we got beloved disciple, too good of a Christian, he gets this vision where Jesus appears before him. And when he sees Jesus, it describes Jesus as, like there's no words, he's just making up words to try to define what he says. Like his hair was really bright white and his feet were bronze. And it's just, I fell on my face and I was afraid. I was like a dead man, is what John says. And Jesus had to come to him and say, John, don't be afraid. It's me. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Like, that's the kind of glory that Jesus deserves. That's the kind of experience that he should have as God. He walks into a room and he says, and everyone falls like the dead. Jesus emptied himself of that. He laid it aside. Of all the privileges uh, of being God, he had the rights and he had the right of way, but taking the form of a bondservant, he was made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You remember last week, we talked about how Jesus called himself the good shepherd. And the big idea, among all the things that Jesus does as good shepherd, the best thing, the most powerful thing, the most incredible thing for us and to us is that he lays down his life for his sheep. We are the hired hand, Jesus said. The person who acts as a shepherd but really isn't is a person who's there for himself to meet his own needs. His concern is for himself, but Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. Did you consider that at all this week? It just, it just rang with me throughout the week and as I moved into this text that like even the lowest position, the, the complete sacrifice of everything was not too low for Jesus if it meant holding us up. He wasn't too proud to wear our skin. He wasn't too proud to bear all of our sin on the cross. I'm I'm ashamed of my sins. Jesus wasn't so ashamed to wear my sins and those of all of humanity because he humbled, he emptied himself. And Jesus choosing the lowest place, I think is the thing that shows us the greatest love, doesn't it? Shows us the character of God is revealed in the way that Jesus emptied himself. That God, in his godness, is a giver, not a grasper. The generosity of God is, very, is completely core to who God is in his inner being. He's a giver, not a grasper. And like, who is like that? Among all the earth, who is like that? I'm not like that. No one that I have ever seen, known, or heard who has a bit of power or a bit of knowledge just goes, mm, I'm going to lay it off. We grasp and we hoard, and Jesus empties himself, and he's putting the nature of God on display. That's why the Bible says knowledge puffs up in humans, right? We know a little something, and we think, My, my goodness, I got four kids. One of them's eight. She yesterday told me she's an expert at four different things. You're an expert, you're an expert at nothing, you're eight. I'm an expert at nothing, <laughs> you know? Knowledge puffs up in humans. And Paul's case here is, is really simple in Philippians 2. He he cannot imagine a person being a follower of Jesus without having the mind of Christ. I mean, I mean, think about this. If Jesus was humble, why would I be prideful? He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's God. He's my Savior. He's my everything. We just sang, all I want more than anything is just to know you and to be in your presence, then why if he, the King of kings and Lord of lords, would go low, why on earth would I go high and criticize and judge and hold people at a distance? Man, I was thinking about this this week. I thought about it on Monday morning and it just sat with me all week long. How, if you have had people tell you how smart you are, and how right you are and how successful you are, but you've never had anyone accuse you of being humble or full of grace or just too kind, then you may have something wrong with your theology. You know? If people are always telling me, oh, you're so smart, I like how you say this, and you're so good. And you're, but they're never saying, man, you're just you're just being too graceful in this situation. If you've never been accused of being too humble or too graceful, then you may have a theology problem. We may have missed the point of everything uh, that came with Jesus's incarnation and his life and his sacrifice and his death and everything that everything that he's called us to in the Christian life. We may have missed the point of it, but we wouldn't be alone. I think about in in the Gospels after the disciples have been walking with Jesus. I mean, for three years they've been walking with him, listening to him speak the words not read on a page but spoken from his own voice, and they watched his actions of power, but they watched his meekness and they knew his character. They saw his gentleness again and again every day, how he was gentle. I said, let the children come to me, how he took the woman who was scorned by others and said, let me lift you up, how he was kind, how he was overflowing with compassion. He would look on a crowd and he would weep with compassion for them just because he knew that they didn't have, they were sheep without a shepherd. He says in one place, right? And yet still, as they getting closer to his crucifixion after three years of ministry with him and watching him and listening to him, observing him, they got into an ugly fight about who was most important. <laughs> right? In this moment, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and their mother, it says that they, uh, they began to come to Jesus and try to weasel a place of honor for James and John in the kingdom of, of God. Let them sit on your right and on your left. And the other disciples heard about this. <laughs> And hearing this, the ten became indignant. That's Greek for they were really, really mad and about to kill them. Uh, They became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And here Gentiles simply means people who are far from God, who are apart from God, who don't know God. They don't really know the love of God. They don't have that relationship. You know the rulers of people who are far from God lord their power over people and great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave, just as, and Jesus speaks of himself, just as Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And from that moment forward, the disciples understood, and they never got into fights again, and they were just humble, and they never, they never struggled with pride. It was wonderful. It was happy, happy days. No, like two days later, they're going to celebrate Passover. And Peter and John had secured a room for Jesus and the disciples to do the Passover meal together. And imagine the room, you'd have a low table and they would recline around the table and they would take meal together. Also remember that when they're traveling, they're traveling by foot most of the time and they don't have nice like Air Force Ones or nice combat boots on. What are they wearing? They're wearing sandals or they're barefoot. And so when they're walking in the muck, moving towards this room to lay down beside each other with their feet up and eat the meal you would want to have your feet washed that was the custom to have your feet washed and you would secure a servant to do so either someone who worked in a household or someone you would pay to help serve the meal and serve the feet and serve the people and peter and john got a room but they didn't get that part done and as the disciples filed into this room, they're talking, they see the table laid out, they walk and they recline at the table and they start taking the meal together with their gross feet up in the air. It had to be such an awkward moment. And I, like, I don't know, maybe one of them noticed first and then another and then a couple of others or maybe they just all saw it once as Jesus, without a word, stood up, and walked across the room and he takes off his outer garment, the Bible says, and he wraps himself and a towel. Now it's got to be dead silent in the room. No one's speaking. They're watching, going, what is happening? Oh, I should have done that, right? Where's the servant? And they listen as the water pours from the pitcher into the basin, and they watch as Jesus, the one who came, who is God, one who had been teaching them everything and showing them everything, came and he set the basin before each disciple, and he did begin to wash their gross feet, and the towel that's wrapped around them. he'd dry their feet with the towel. What an awkward moment. What a breathtaking moment. What a defining moment for who God is. And The amazing thing about Jesus is that his humility and his care for others authenticated his message. Does that make sense? that all of the things he would teach, all of the truth that he embodied, all of the things that he was absolutely right about and the world was wrong about was given power. He was empowered by his meekness and his acts of humility, that his mindset was, his attitude was, my concern is for you. That's what gave power to his words and to his message. And guys, I want this so badly for our church I want so badly for our church to be known for our sincerity and our humility. That's what people would say about Legacy Church. They know you in the community. They go, oh, they must be Christians. I bet they're they're part of Legacy Church. Not that we're one way on Sundays and that we go out and we're a different way or that we're kind when we're in here but we're killers outside or maybe that we put on like the clothing of humility and kindness to try to prove something. But then really, if someone crosses me, if you disagree with me, I'm a cold-blooded killer. I so badly want our church to be known for our sincerity and our, our humility. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, if you hadn't read it by now, you just, you just got to put it on an audiobook or something. He said, if anyone would like to acquire humility... I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And it's a biggish step, I like that word. It's a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Right? It's an all of us issue. It's an every person issue. I think back to when I was a youth pastor over 20 years ago, and I knew everything back then, right? It's like before you have kids, I knew everything before I had kids, and I kept looking at people who had kids, and I was like, like, God, never, God, you're awful. <laughs> uh, you know, my, my friend Chad Bailey and his wife Ryan Bailey led one week while I was on sabbatical, and uh, we had Elizabeth when we first met them, uh, and she was a baby baby, and we went to their house right after we met them, and they had two young boys, and I sat there judging everything that was happening in their house. God, they're the worst. And I went back and apologized. I confessed and apologized later. You don't know what you don't know, right? remember when I was a youth pastor, and I thought I was right about everything. And I worked with a pastor who, you know, for better or worse, I disagreed on a lot of things, that he said and a lot of ways that he did things. And I just knew that I was right. And I think I knew that I was a little arrogant, maybe off the charts arrogant. I think I knew it, but I also had in my mind, I'm doing it for the Lord though, right? But I'm doing it for the Lord and I'm right, which is what we do. We give ourselves permission to be total jerks because we're doing it for the Lord. I don't know why we're convincing ourselves of that if our character doesn't match that of And I went from there and I took that same attitude into church planting. At 23 years old, I was was gonna church plant. And I had a guy who I met who said, I want to support your church plant, I wanna be, I I wanna have your back, I wanna cover you. Here's what I want you to do: I want you to get some training from this pastor over here who leads a church planting network. I think that it would really help you. And I looked him square in the face at 23 and I said, Yeah, I don't think I need that. See, I was a part of a church plant in college. You didn't know that. (laughs) And I read a bunch of church planting books. So I got a real good picture of what we need to do as a church. And he looked at me and said, okay, but you know, there's a group of church planters you might come and be a part of. And then you like support. And again, I looked at him and said, that's nice, that's nice. I'm good. I got some people, and, and we've got this thing figured out. And what began to change, what began the change in me it still is a thing that has, the Lord is changing is that I began to fail at everything. The Lord in his grace let me fail at absolutely everything. I, had, I like the, had the golden touch when I was a youth pastor, but then now nothing worked. Everything that I tried failed. In our church, our little church is full of these emotionally, you know, just distraught people. We were all immature. None of us knew what to do, really. We thought we did, and, and nothing worked. Everything that we tried failed. And I was doing bad in my marriage. I had a, I was bivocational. I did a job for a telecom company. I was a bad Christian at work. Like, I'm a pastor, and I'm going to work, and I'm a bad witness for Christ. And everything in my life is going wrong, and I'm looking at these jokers who don't know how to do ministry, do ministry, and everything's working. And I'm going, Lord, like this guy, he's a dummy. Why is his ministry working? And I'm so smart. Why is my failing? And I didn't get it. And the Lord kept letting me fail and kept letting me fail until it began to sink in that my trust was in me. And even though I thought I was doing it for the Lord, I was doing it all wrong. It didn't matter what I was doing in my actions if my heart was wrong. My desire was wrong. So God gave me a a job as a, a pastor at a church doing care. My job description is like care for people. It's not very long. Care for people. Actually care for them. And, you know, when you're arrogant, what you do is you interpret that as fix people. Look, I even took, you know, three words and now it's two. Fix people, period. And so I had these people and I would meet with them all week long. I'd go to them. They'd come to me. We'd meet all week long and they had problems. And I said, I'm here. I can fix you. Right? And then I began to, to learn this prayer, and I would take this prayer into my meetings. Lord, help me not even think about trying to fix anything for these people. Help me just to be with them. Help me to listen more than speak. Help me listen to learn with curiosity and not listen to respond and react. Help me not to try to fix anyone. And some things began to change and grow in my life. How do we change? Look at Philippians 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for whose good pleasure? For his good pleasure. How do we change? With the great news is God himself is at work in you. He is doing the work of changing in you. We don't have a chance of changing ourselves. Do you realize that? Let's be 42, I don't have a chance of changing what's wrong in my life. I've proven it for 42 years. I don't have a chance. The good news is God is on the job site and he is at work. And He is very good at changing lives and changing hearts. The first thing that he does change, if we'll let him, if we're open to it, if we'll receive it, the first thing he changes is our desires. See where it says he's working for his good pleasure? and doesn't say he's working for my good pleasure. He's working that my life and my pleasure and my desire would be more in line with his. Our desires are in many ways the most important thing about us. I love a book by Jen Pollock-Michael. She wrote, desire is the most powerful subtext of our lives. It determines our decisions. And this is why we need to pay attention to our desires. If we're to change, desire must change. If we're going to change, our desires must change. And what Paul says is, that's what God is changing. He's starting with your desires, that you would love the things that he loves. And remember in Mark, when Jesus said, out of the, the heart, the man speaks, the words overflow from the heart. That. That's what's happening is he's changing our desires. It's changing what comes out in our lives. And some of you, you've heard the principle of life, the business principle, outlook determines outcome. Have you heard that before? Outlook determines outcome. It's true, and it's true right here. If your outlook is selfish, if your outlook is about me, and you're thinking about what I know and what power I have and what position I have, and people ought to know what I know and think like I think, then your actions are gonna be destructive and divisive. But if your outlook is Wrapped in the mind of Christ and the humility of Christ, then your actions are going to be full of love and full of grace and generous, and you'll be a giver, not a grasper. And there's a power to that. And outlook does determine outcome. But it's not just let go and let God. Because I've been there, and some of you maybe are there. You go, well, God, I'm here. You know, I have surrendered to Jesus and I read my Bible and I, you know, I took a Bible study class and and I'm trying to be very nice. And so I'm just waiting on you to change all of those things and make me humble, God. It's not just let go and let God, because verse 12 also says you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Did you see that part? You need to work it out. And this isn't working out what he hasn't already placed in. It's not like, oh, I don't have humility or anything in here. I got to go get it and I got to work it in somehow. It's not that. It's work out what's already in you. You've got to exercise your salvation. Does that make sense? You guys are full of muscles in your body. You're jacked. I look at you, I go, you guys all, you took the, like the 2024 workout plan. I can see the development already. You're doing great. If you weren't full of muscles, you would be a puddle on the floor. You understand that, right? You would be a puddle on the floor, but you have muscles. That's how you're sitting up straight right now. That's how you walked into the building. And you know this, to grow in capability, to grow in stability, to grow in strength, you have to get up and you have to move. You have to walk. Maybe you run or you ride or you lift or whatever you do, but you have to exercise the muscles if you're going to grow in stability and capability in your life. And he says, you got to work out your salvation. You want to grow in Christ-likeness? You got to work it out. You got to exercise it. You got to lift it. You got to practice it. You want to grow in humility? Then use the humility muscle again and again and again and watch it begin to take over in your life. Here's my challenge. It's the question. Am I willing to commit to daily empty myself of pride and exercise, work out humility muscles? I find a lot of people just are not. Every day I meet people who are not willing to empty themselves and exercise humility. And maybe it's because you go, but I am right, (laughs) you know? And they were really dumb in what they said. I am right, I can't help that. Maybe it's because I'm doing it for the Lord, you know? This person is so off base and I just, they need to know and I'm the one to tell them. Maybe it's because, well, look, if I don't, then then no one will take a stand here. I'm always thinking about me. I'm not leaving any room for the Holy Spirit to work in the kindness which leads to repentance. Am I really willing to empty myself of pride and exercise humility and Just think about that. Think about all the places we're challenged in this. Think about like when you're in traffic and some joker cuts you off immediately. You're like, oh, they must have something going on in their life, you know? No, you're not. (laughs) You're as mad as I am. And you know, we put microphones in all your cars. I've heard some of the things that you've said. I've heard it. You know, think about when you're at the store and and someone's doing something dumb in line in front of you. And you're going, oh, you know, they probably got a hard life. I, I can be patient. I can wait or when, yeah, it's a political year, we're gonna have a presidential election, should be fun. Think about when, when this stuff really takes off, and you go, oh, awesome, an opportunity to exercise humility, I love it, woo! Um, this is put to the test every day in small ways and in big ways. Sometimes I wonder, like, have I considered anyone as more important than myself this week? You know, ask that question, you go, have, I, have you this morning, Considered anyone is more important than yourself. You know, you, I get up this morning and it's like, it's like, man, it's cold and I'm tired. And I wish people knew how early I get up on Sundays. I mean, y'all, seriously, and the wind was hitting me. Real, I parked back, jeez, y'all don't know how hard I've had it today. And then, you know, we had this, Anthony had to fix this tech thing. Y'all don't know how hard we've got it, right? We think about us all the time and we can't stop. And it's become so normal. Have you considered anyone as more important than yourself today? Some of course, when the moms are like, of course I did. Everyone was more important than me today. We'll thank you for that on Mother's Day, one day a year only. <laughs> <laughs> Humility is greater than rightness. And if you apply that to any relationship, just watch how the power is unleashed in that relationship. Transformative power. When you leave today, there's going to be a card like this that I want you to grab. It's a 30-day challenge. It's a 30-day challenge card. And we made this card, and it starts today, the 14th. January is in blue, and February is in, in red. It's 30 days where I challenge you to work out your salvation by practicing humility. And every night before you go to bed, whatever time you go to bed, I want you to have this card by your bedside table. I'm giving you specific instructions. A lot of times I go, just go be godly, right? No, no, I'm telling you, take this card. And I want you to set it beside the place where you lay down, the last place you are before you go to sleep, and every night for the next 30 days to look at the card, look at the date, and decide, did I empty myself today, and did I exercise humility? Some of you are going to have to call a friend or wake up a spouse and be like, I didn't do it today, so we need to fight so I can be humble. Let's go. (laughs) You know? Exercise humility. The danger is you're gonna check the boxes and be like, look at me and how humble I am. And then you go, Well, now you're not humble anymore, right? Can't show your card to anybody. May I ought to have you all turn in your cards and we'll just have a, a competition now. I want you to take this card and to exercise to, to work out the muscles of humility because you know this in anything that you do in life, the more discipline and practice you have with that thing, the better, the better you get at it. And if you want to be a person who carries the character of Christ's humility into this world, you got to exercise it. And I hope this is a help to you. I'll end with this. You know, when you read the book of Philippians, it's a book that's about joy. (laughs) It's all about joy. Even when it's about suffering, it's about joy. Even when it's a call to humility, it's about unlocking some of the secrets to life and experiencing real joy in this life. And it's always about this: Jesus first, others second, and yourself third. And you understand that's an acronym for joy, right? And I want you to remember that as you go this week: Jesus, others, and yourself. It's the secret to experiencing joy like no other. Jesus said that my joy would be in you, and your joy would be to the full in John fifteen. You don't know the secret? Think about Jesus first. Consider others more important than yourself. It's a secret it unlocks it. It's powerful. I got to believe if we would commit ourselves to this church, if we would really just dive in and practice this, exercise this humility, what a, what a powerful, transformative church we would become. What an anchor in the storms of life, and what absolute joy and life and love would fill this place in these people. It'd be beautiful. It's something I want to be a part of. So I leave you with the question are you willing to commit daily? empty yourself of pride to exercise humility. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that we're probably less awestruck than we should be when we read of your meekness and humility. Because when we sing songs about awesome God and King of kings, we read passages, you made everything. All things are held together by the power of your word. We realize that you also are the suffering servant who laid down your life and picked it up again. It wasn't taken from you. You came not to be served, though you should have. I mean, you should have. From our perspective, that's what you should have done. You should have showed up and just said, I'm here, serve me. But you didn't. You came and you served us. And you took the lowest path. Help us to understand that Christianity isn't simply that that you took the low road so that you would then be exalted, but that you call every one of us to follow you, to take the low road so that we might rise in resurrection life. And there is no resurrection life apart from death. Life comes after death in the Christian story. So help us to stand in awe at what you have done for us. And may we not just be observers of your humility, but participants in it. So that we might more and more reflect the one who saved us, who leads us, who would have a king who bows and then still rise up with pride and criticize others. Help us to, to follow after you. And through that, would you be glorified? And maybe could we come to that place where we have favor among all the people the Lord would add number to our number daily those who are being saved. And it wouldn't be said of us, well, I like your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. And so they'd say, oh, you're Christians. Remind me of the stories of Christ. Holy Spirit, would you help us in that? In Jesus' name.